Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 23, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving. Once you cross that bridge, my friends, the ghost is through. His power ends. Ichabod's hat was found, and close beside it, a shattered pumpkin. But there was no trace of the schoolmaster. Odds, bodkins, gadzooks. Look at that old spook of spooks. Welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Sella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we take a thorough look at one piece of literature that we have both read, and we determine whether it is worthy of its reputation. I'm Tom Panneries, and with me as always is the Headless Horseman to my Ichabod Crane. Oh, wow. Stella, That's... how are you? <laughs> I'm doing well. I'm surprised we went with that. So I guess at the end, I throw my pumpkin head at you and then you disappear and who knows what happens to you. Well, uh, we, we are all aware that you have a wrath uh, 
defies explanation. <laughs> yeah, only for the most special of people. Yes. Uh, so it's it actually we're on, back on a regular recording schedule too because we took those couple of months off, and uh, our regular recording schedule started to collide with the beginning of the school year. So we're it's I think within the next couple of episodes we'll have a little more energy because I can tell that in one of the episodes we did toward the end of the year last year. We were both kind of, and you could. I was definitely dragging. I can't remember which well, one. Well, was it drama? It might have been drama. I know tonight the two of us are just. I don't know. I know you have been. You have this weird schedule where you're working certain days where you're just like, you get like thirty minutes of That's time to yourself. Yep. It's draining. Just, I was just had a department meeting today, and we were talking about how like we're just all starting to kind of come out of that initial like couple of weeks where your body like rebels against you. You're like, wait, you're not supposed to be working right now. You've been off. And all of a sudden you just start, you're not sick, but you just start feeling just fatigue. And the last couple of days I felt a little bit better, a little bit less fatigued. But there were some days where I would walk in. I'm just, I was just like, I almost fell asleep at my desk. Oh my gosh. Yeah. On my planning period, not during class. Yeah. That's usually when it happens because there's little activity. Mm -hmm. And in my case, I was grading essays. Oh, boy. And not terrible essays, but, you know, yeah, 15 in a row. And you're like, <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yeah. yeah, I was thinking today when I knew we were going to do this or yesterday as well. I thought, wow, I feel like I just talked to Tom about a book. But I think it was also because I waited <laughs> nearly to the last moment of editing our previous episode. So maybe it seems <laughs> like it was yeah. very recent that we talked together. Um, and for those of you guys who did send feedback on or have started to send feedback on our most recent episode, which as of this recording just dropped, yep. uh, we will cover a lot of that feedback next episode. But uh, tonight we're talking about uh, since this is going to drop in October, I thought I'd pick something that was seasonal. And um, since we're both in the beginning of the school year, I was able to pick something that was short. But this is not—it's this is not like a cheat or anything like that. This is a piece of classic American literature. I think the two of us can kind of agree on that, you know. And it is *The Legend of Sleepy Hollow* by Washington Irving. As always, I'm going to give um, some context of the book and the real-life history of the author, as well as give my plot synopsis before we get into the discussion. But before we even get into that. I want to ask you what your history is with The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Yeah, my history is mainly with the Disney cartoon adaptation that came out in 1949. I love that. (laughs) It's so well done. And I just watched it tonight, too. I watched it, and then I reread, for the most part, the short story again to prepare for this. And it's just so much fun. I think it's really well done. It's got that Disney flair of having music and a really well-spoken and soft-spoken and just a beautiful voice narrator. Mm-hmm. And so that's, I think, major. that's really where my history with, with the story began. Of course, I think it's just an awesome tale. And I did watch the Fox adaptation that they had uh, called Sleepy Hollow. I watched maybe three of the four seasons. I think there are four oh, okay. seasons. But this is the first time that I actually sat down and read the story. So this was uh, a lot of fun for me and different but familiar territory. 
I have kind of the same history where I was first introduced to, to it through that Disney cartoon. I believe the full one is called The Adventures of Mr. Toad and Ichabod because it was always packaged together with the Mr. Toad, um, Wind of the Willows cartoon. But I remember that, especially the sequence with the Headless Horseman being run on like ABC during Halloween, like on a Disney, the Disney Sunday movie or like one of those things in the 80s quite a bit. So I've seen that. And I haven't watched that whole thing through in years, but I remember seeing that whole Headless Horseman sequence many, many times over as a kid. And in, I was just talking about it with my students today about how it's a fun little cartoon and it's got that sort of Disney kind of lightheartedness to it. But when they get to the Headless Horseman part, it's to a little kid, it's genuinely kind of frightening. You know, they, they don't, they don't back down on the, on the Gothic kind of horror kind of scariness of it. Kind of in the way that if you uh, remember the end of sleeping beauty, where Maleficent turns into a dragon, you know, like, you know what I'm talking about. Oh No, I, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I love that entire sequence. I love how it's animated. I love the fight. I love how they don't shy away from how scary it actually is in a sense, like how scary she is as a villainous and as a monster. And that's what that sleepy hollow cartoon reminded me of too. I think I read this for the first time when I was in elementary school, but I don't remember it very well. I do remember at some point, Getting a book, which uh, was like at like one of those book book fair things, that was The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle, like packaged in one small paperback. And I don't have that book anymore, but um, that's where I first encountered it. I know I owned it. I'm pretty sure I read it, but I didn't really remember it. And it wasn't until a number of years ago when I was teaching 11th grade that I don't think I taught it or I tried to teach it. And I had read it. Um, and I think we might have read it as well in class. So I had read it for the first time. So and then I and then I pulled it, pulled it again. So I read it every few years. I should note that you were reading off of a PDF. I think, you know, I hope the scan that I sent you was good. I scanned it and I have grabbed it out of the uh Norton Anthology of American Literature, Volume 1. Wow. That was not even my copy. It's my wife's. It was one of the few things that the two of us saved from our uh, English lit classes in college were our Nortons. So we have the two volumes of British literature, um, one volume of American literature. We have the complete Norton Shakespeare in our house. So this still has the uh, University of Virginia bookstore a barcode on it. So, so that's what I'm working out tonight. And I scanned it for you. It is available quite a few places. And I want to say that it's for the most part in the public domain. So it's not hard to come by. You might be able to get like a free or very cheap copy on Amazon. If you have a Kindle or something like that, you could probably download it on the free or for cheaper. It might even be on like one of those free sites like the Gutenberg project or something like that. So just kind of heads up anybody who really does want to read this. Um, and I'm going to get into a little bit of the of the author and, and, and the publication, because it was actually a part of a larger short story collection called The Sketchbook of Jeffrey Crayon Gentleman uh, that included the other one of the other uh, stories that Irving is very, very famous for, which is Rick Van Winkle. Uh, Washington Irving himself was born on 18... 
April 3rd, 1783, and he died on November 28th, 1859. And I'm grabbing this from Wikipedia, just going to read off a little bit of the intro to his Wikipedia page. He was an American short story writer, essayist, biographer, historian, and diplomat of the early 19th century. He, of course, is best known for Rip Van Winkle, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Um, another one, The uh, Devil and Tom Walker, is another one of his very famous short stories. And as I mentioned, both of the stories that I just said were published in the sketchbook of Jeffrey Crayon Gentleman. His historical works include biographies of Oliver Goldsmith, Muhammad, and George Washington, as well as several histories of 15th century Spain dealing with subjects such as Ahambra, Christopher Columbus, and the Moors. Irving served as the United States ambassador to Spain from 1842 to 1846. He made his literary debut in 1802 with a series of observational letters to the Morning Chronicle, written under the pseudonym of Jonathan Oldstyle. After moving to England for the family business in 1815, he achieved international fame with the publication of the sketchbook of Geoffrey Crayon, which was serialized from 1819 to 1820. He continued to publish regularly and almost always successfully throughout his life, and just eight months before his death at age 76 in Tarrytown, New York, he completed a five-volume biography of George Washington. Irving, along with James Fenimore Cooper, who, um, if you are not familiar with him, is most famous for books such as The Last of the Mohicans, was among the first American writers to earn a claim in Europe, and having and Irving encouraged American authors such as Nathaniel Hawthorne, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Herman Melville, and Edgar Allan Poe. Irving was also admired by some European writers, including Lord Byron, Thomas Campbell, Charles Dickens, Francis Jeffrey, and Walter Scott. Also, as the United States' first internationally best-selling author, Irving advocated for writing as a legitimate profession and argued for stronger laws to protect American writers from copyright infringement. So let's get into a little bit of the history of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow itself. As I said, this was published in the sketchbook of Jeffrey Crayon Gentleman in 1820. Irving wrote most of it during a trip to Europe, and therefore there are a number of European influences on his work from this time. Pertinent to this story is the idea of a headless horseman. Uh, this was a device used in Northern European storytelling, and these figures would often appear and frighten or kill those who were scheming or were full of hubris and arrogance. Another source of the characters and the horseman himself could also be some of the people in and around the Tarrytown area in New York, which is where Irving resided through the latter part of his life. Ichabod Crane and Katrina Van Tassel were actual people, although he may have taken liberties with each person's personality. In fact, the character of Ichabod is said to be based on a local school teacher named Jesse Merwin. The Headless Horseman has its origins in a legend and some history of the area during the Revolutionary War. After the British overran the Continental Army in the greater New York City area, the Continental Army fled, and this is what eventually leads to Washington spending the winter at Valley Forge and then eventually crossing the Delaware, uh, and the th area where Tarrytown now exists basically became abandoned to be a sort of no-man's land. While there was not complete lawlessness, uh, the way it's described is almost as of if it was a little bit of a Wild West sort of territory. Um, as there were a number of marauders and other criminals who did well for themselves, and things weren't as forced as strongly as enforced as strongly as they could be. So the rumor is that the headless horseman is based on a victim of one such skirmish. 
uh, a headless corpse that was supposedly found in Sleepy Hollow during the revolution and then buried in an unmarked grave by the Van Tassel family. This is from Wikipedia directly to wrap up a little bit of uh, our history of the Sleepy Hollow legend. The story was one of the longest one published as part of the book it was published in. Um, and it's, this book is commonly referred to as the, uh, the sketchbook. And Irving issued serially it serially throughout 1890 20 and 1820 using the pseudonym Jeffrey Crayon. With Rip Van Winkle, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow is one of Irving's most anthologized, studied, and adapted sketches. Both stories are often paired together in books and other representations and are both included in surveys of early American literature and romanticism. Irving's depictions of regional culture and his themes of progress versus tradition, supernatural intervention in the commonplace, and the plight of the individual outsider in a homogenous community permeate both stories and help to develop a unique sense of American cultural and existential selfhood during the early 19th century. So a little bit of trivia surrounding Westchester County, which is where this takes place. Uh, it's Westchester County is just north of New York, uh, the greater New York City area, and expands out to about, you know, where the, this is where the Tappan Zee is. Um, in fact, I believe the exits off the, is it the throughway or, or one of the parkways heading up uh, to the Tappan Zee Bridge? It's like one of the last exits before the old Tappan Zee Bridge was the exit to Ossining and Tarrytown if I remember. I've only been up there a few times in my life. But annually since 1996, before Halloween, the nonprofit organization of the historic Hudson Valley has held Legend Weekend, an event at the Phillipsburg Manor House in Sleepy Hollow, featuring a rider portraying the Headless Horseman and a storyteller named Jonathan Cruck retelling the legend of the Sleepy Hollow as an historic celebration attended by thousands. In 1997, the village of North Tarrytown New York, as the village had been called since the late 19th century, where many events of the story actually took place, were said to have taken place, officially changed its name to Sleepy Hollow, and it has a Sleepy Hollow High School whose sports teams are named the Horsemen. <laughs> and in 2006, a large statue depicting the headless horseman chasing Ichabod Crane was placed around along Route 9 in Sleepy Hollow and Tarrytown, that area of New York. As mentioned a little bit, and a little bit by both of us and in my summary here, um, there have been many, many adaptations of Sleepy Hollow uh, in all sorts of media. I'm going to give you guys a rundown of just a few of some of the noteworthy ones. Uh, there was a silent film starring Will Rogers as Ichabod Crane back in 1922 called The Headless Horseman. What we already noted... The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, so I, I transpose the names, but um, this is an animated version produced by Disney. The Mr. Toad portion is a totally separate story. It's just a, a dual presentation. I don't know about you, but this is my favorite adaptation of the entire story, like out of all of them. I still love this, and I've loved it since I was a kid. There was another short animated version often showed in theaters prior to the animated Charlotte's Web movie back in 1972. In 1976, our favorite team of investigators who are just basically meddling kids with their stupid dog, Scooby-Doo, had an episode called The Headless Horseman of Halloween. In the 1970s, the CBS special called Once Upon a Midnight Dreary, which was hosted by Vincent Price, starred, I'm going to mispronounce his name, I think it's René Aubergenois, uh, who was Odo on Deep Space Nine as Ichabod Crane. 
1980, there was a TV movie version called The Legend of Sleepy Hollow starring Jeff Goldblum as Ichabod Crane, Meg Foster as Katina Van Castle, and a form- and former Chicago Bears linebacker Dick Butkus as Brom Bones. Numerous television episodes and other adaptations throughout the 1980s and 1990s featured some sort of variation on this legend. And the two that are really, really well-known, at least within the last two decades, are the 1999 Tim Burton movie Sleepy Hollow, which starred Johnny Depp as Ichabod Crane and Christopher Walken as the Headless Horseman. Have you seen that one? I I think I have, but I didn't remember Christopher Walken being the Headless Horseman, so maybe I should watch it again. Maybe I haven't seen all of it. I feel like I've seen segments of it because it pops up on like TNT or USA a lot. Yeah, just especially around this time of year. Yeah. Um, I have seen it in its entirety once, and I think it was like way back in like 2000, 2001. So I, I don't remember much about it, except I remember Johnny Depp doing this sort of like abs like he he's supposed to be a smart character but he also like faints a lot and there's a lot oh. of like comedic bits and stuff uh, i think christina ricci is in it as well. that is correct yep okay and i'm sure helena bottom carter shows up at one point <laughs> she has to yeah and then of course you mentioned a little uh, a little earlier that yes fox had a television series uh from 2013 to 2017 that was basically Ichabod Crane and the Headless Horseman, called Sleepy Hollow, Ichabod and the Headless Horseman showed up in the 21st century. It was, I, I wrote down the phrase supernatural procedural. Uh, I never watched it, so I don't know if that's an apt description. No, it would make sense, yeah, because he teams up with a cop, and so they investigate basically like supernatural crimes and things. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so that was good. Cool. All right. So let's get into the plot. It's a short story. Um, well, it is. It's the form of a short is, story. Yeah. yeah. So the plot of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow is not very complex. So this summary is not very, very long. The titular setting of Sleepy Hollow is a town that neighbors the town of Tarrytown in upstate New York, which, for those of you who know New York State geography, is in Westchester County. It is on the Hudson River, and it is about 25 miles north of Midtown Manhattan. Of course, the idea of Midtown Manhattan didn't exist when Washington Irving wrote this story in, uh, in 1819. So he places Sleepy Hollow in the countryside surrounding Tarrytown and introduces it as a small village with a reputation for hauntings and other odd, maybe even paranormal sightings. The most famous of these is the infamous Headless Horseman, who was supposedly a Hessian soldier. And uh, for those of you who don't remember American history or Revolutionary War history. These were German soldiers who were allied by the British with the British during the Revolutionary War. And if I'm not mistaken, a number were a number of them were also hired as mercenaries on some level. But um, don't quote me on. Anyway, he had his head blown off by a cannon, and now he haunts the road near Sleepy Hollow Church. This into this enters Ichabod Crane. He is the local school teacher who, it must be noted, is an outsider to the Tarrytown Sleepy Hollow area. This is a village that Irving notes was settled by the Dutch, and Crane is what would have been considered at the time a Yankee. Irving describes him as tall, lanky, and most importantly, prone to superstition. He is also vying for the affections of Katina Van Tassel, who is the daughter of the wealthiest man in Sleepy Hollow, Baltus Van Tassel. Unfortunately for Ichabod, the direct competition for the hand of Katina is Brom Van Brunt, 
whereas he's more commonly known Brom Bones. Brom Bones is the epitome of the alpha male bully, and as part of his efforts to win Katina for himself, he constantly plays jokes on Ichabod. This all comes to a head one autumn night when Ichabod is given an invitation to a party at the Van Tassels, one which is also attended by Brom Bones. Ichabod has a great time at the party, dancing, eating, drinking, and listening to scary ghost stories told around the parlor by a number of guests, including Mr. Bones himself. As the party nears its conclusion, Ichabod makes his move and declares his intentions to romance and marry Katina, and he is more or less shot down. Dejected, Ichabod mounts his mighty steed, Gunpowder, and heads down through the road through Sleepy Hollow. As he slowly makes his way back to his house, he starts thinking about and gets absorbed in the details of all the legends he had heard in the party, especially as he passes the place that they talked about. So it's the sequence where he's passing all these places where like all these sort of legends occurred, and he's kind of like thinks he sees the stuff they were talking about. You know how your eyes play tricks on you sometimes, especially at night. So then he comes across someone else on the road, someone who is on a horse. Someone who has no head. Ichabod races for the bridge past the church, thinking that if he can make it that far, he'll be okay. The horseman's not going to cross that bridge, but it's not meant to be. The headless horseman attacks. Ichabod is nowhere to be found the next day. And a search party, well, they turn up a discarded hat, his trampled saddle, gunpowder, his horse, and a shattered pumpkin. Brom Bones goes on to marry Katina Van Tassel, and it's noted that whenever the topic of Ichabod's appearance came up from that point on, he has a knowing look on his face. Meanwhile, despite some speculation that he skipped town and is possibly living in Kentucky or other parts of the country, the legend of Ichabod Crane grows, and people in the area swear they can see his spirit wandering around. So that is The Legends of Sleepy Hollow, and the question we always start off with when we have these discussions is... And I think we kind of sort of answered this earlier, but we'll, we'll say it again. Did you like it? I did. <laughs> I did really like I'm sorry. The reason why I'm laughing is you kept saying Katina, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. I thought it was Katrina. And then I had to search, and it actually is Katrina. But, it is Katrina that I totally – But, I, I mean, Katina? well, the font is so small that I can see why it, it made Oh, uh, my bad. It doesn't matter. I just thought it's um, Katrina. It is Katrina, but that's okay. One man's Katina is another woman's Katrina. That's true. I I did really like it. I think having such a background with a 1949 tale, I was coming in with certain expectations, and I was somewhat overwhelmed by the how descriptive Irving is. Yeah. <laughs> because you don't even really get to see Ichabod, I would say, for maybe two pages. Maybe that's... But I mean, he's he's just very descriptive in setting up the town and setting up Ichabod and what he's like physically as well as what he's doing. And then just everything. It's it's really wonderful. I mean, he jam packs this short story with uh, just really flowery language and just really descriptive. Uh, we would call that ekphrasis in uh, in Latin class where you sort of go off and, and make it just so vivid that uh, as a reader, you can absolutely picture what's going on. And I think that's what makes this such a great tale. 
Yeah, I agree with you. Um, we're back um, now. I, I did teach this um, 12 or 13 years ago, like a very, very long time ago. And um, one of the things that my I do remember my students commenting on was how what they're very familiar with um, happens in at least in our copy here is what's the last like three or four pages of the story, you know, and, and it is a lot of it's a very dense it's very dense writing in, in many cases. And, and you're right. It, he's very descriptive. But at the same time, and, and I used to it used to kind of bug me, but like in rereading it a couple of times over the years, especially this time around, like I really did get wrapped up in the description that he was providing. Like, and, and I felt he was like really, really vivid. And even if he is, and, and maybe it's kind of a, a, a tendency at the time to provide a lot of that information in that description. We see it in novels of this century as well. But yeah, I, I kind of, I agree with you where it's like, I, I find that even adds to the story. Um, there's a lot of setting the scene that I think by the time we get to the big payoff at the end with the encounter with the horsemen, we're like really into this world. You know, we're part of this world. So, And uh, I really, really do like this. I, I totally understand why this is one of the like most famous works of early American or at least early American literature as far as its time in the United States is concerned, you know, as the United States is concerned. Right. So let's talk about that detail. Uh, and, and as always, listeners, we have a list of questions, and um, I think we, I don't think that you and I ever follow them in the order in which we write them. We kind of jump into the one that works the best as far as segue, and, and the second one was that Irving also describes a number of scenes in vivid, painstaking details. So how does this hurt and help the narrative? I mean, if you want to expand on that. Does it hurt and help? Yeah. I think it helps it because, it, like I said, I think it's just so vivid that it's brought to your mind what it's like. I think setting up the town, I think, is very good because the setting, I think, is pretty important to give you a sense of what this area is like and what Ichabod what town he lives in and how the town operates. So getting to know him and especially his night jaunt, because that is another time that once he's traveling to that party, it's very descriptive with the nature, what the nature looks like, the birds that are talking. And then of course, when it's nighttime and he's coming back. So I think it all adds, it's both, foreshadowing i think some doom but it's also just creating i think this nice little sleepy hamlet that's very beautiful and we're in the fall season and you just get a sense of that i think oh and also the food because i think the food mm -hmm. is such a crucial factor in the, for whatever reason but it, you know ichabod just loves the food so it goes i mean there are several passages that talk about the food and um seems to be one of the reasons why he wants to marry katrina i think it harms it if only because you have to slow down in order to better appreciate those passages and like i said it takes a little bit to get even to ichabod and you get to know him through everything but then it seems like it just closes off it ends so quickly because you have all these descriptions you've got the dinner party he's coming back and then just in this short spurt you've got that crazy chase and then he gets hit with the pumpkin and who knows what happens and it's it's it it's it it's so it's so quick so it, it feels like Irving spent a lot of time building everything up and all these descriptions. And then like the the big climax is so short that uh, perhaps, you know, it's just too quick. So I think that's where maybe it, it harms it a little bit. 
Yeah, I can see that. Do you think, though, he also does a good job at lulling you into complacency or lulling you into comfort a little bit? Like, that you are really comfortable in this world, and it's because it's almost this pastoral description. It's, it's You're right, it's sure. beautiful, it's fall, and if you've ever been up in that area, or, or closer to, like, New England or something, in the fall. I mean, around here in the fall, it's gorgeous. So it's that, and it's that colonial era, so the, the idea of that place like that in the fall, it's just very, very comfortable. Which I found interesting, because one of the first things he talks about in the, in the story is um, the actual legend of the headless horseman, you know, so like we know um, before we before we meet Ichabod and before we get to the main plot, we get through all this description and everything. And then he also tells us the legend of the headless horseman, like, you know, what this thing was. But it's not that we don't completely forget about it, because those of us who are familiar with the story enough going into it know of the headless horseman, you know, it's like it's like reading Oedipus. If you've never read Oedipus before, but you know of Oedipus, you know, like, you know what yeah. Oedipus did. You go into this, if you've never read it before, you are familiar with the concept of the Headless Horseman. So, and it's almost like he he sets you up to know that, but then he just lulls you back into this story about this quirky school teacher of which both of us can relate to, which both of us can relate. And yeah. <laughs> Because we're both quirky school teachers, and and um, and this 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 bully of Brom Bones, and this beautiful girl named Katrina Van Tassel, and and the fact that she's rich, and and then like we think it's we do it's like it you think it's gonna go one way, and you think he's just gonna kind of go home, and he's gonna be all right, you know, oh well, and. After she rejects him, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, like gets attacked, and so it's like I think I agree with you in that the quickness of the incident is where the 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 kind of the front loading of everything does harm it a little bit. But at the same time, it also helps the shock value of that, especially in an age where you didn't have horror on the level that you have now, right? I mean, yeah. you know, this predates Poe. I think it predates Mary Shelley as oh, well. Uh, yeah. I think Frankenstein was maybe 10 years after this. So, you know, that idea that, that we're kind of getting a nice little jump scare in a way before before that <laughs> term was even a thing. So. Uh-huh. What do you make of, well, Brom Bones? All right, <laughs> so what do we make of this guy? Is he a villain? Why is he, why is he so obsessed with, like, you know, beating Ichabod? At this, or why does he get like he bullies the guy? Well, what is his deal? Is he a villain? Is he? What, what did you make of him? Yeah, I, this I, this might seem offensive to some, but the best way that I could describe him, and I guess the best comparison for me is just like he's he's a frat bro, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because he has his little friends in the uh, the Sleepy Hollow Boys and he likes to play tricks on people and he it seems like he gets into some rows and he seems to have a reputation for that because even if something happens, the the general agreement of the populace of Sleepy Hollow is that, oh, it must have been <laughs> Brom Bones up to it again. I think, you know, he's got his eyes set on Katrina and so I think because he finds himself a rival because when you read through, you notice that if Brahm is around Katrina, none of the other potential suitors even like attempt 
to go mm-hmm. near her. They just walk away. But then when Ichabod came around, it seemed like Brom wasn't showing up as much and she would spend more time with him. So I think a lot of it is involving that. Uh, you know, in a way, I feel like he might be trying to defend his manhood. Uh, you know, I, I feel like this image of Ichabod is like this nerdy or geeky guy. And I think he has intelligence and culture that Brom doesn't have. But Brom is, is threatened by that. So I, I think the reason why he goes after him is because of Katrina. But I think he's also, you know, his his manhood might be threatened as well and so he doesn't want to he's the big man on campus in sleepy hollow and i think he does it he's very much you know flash thompson (laughs) there's our comic book reference and he doesn't want peter parker to get the girl yeah well there is and there's this sort of um you know we we've heard we've heard the phrase toxic masculinity in in the media a lot over the last few years and uh, it is a thing you know and there's and brom bones is kind of the embodiment of this sort of you're right. This this frat bro attitude of and 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 I would say if we were to really dig deep into the psych, psychology of his character, there's an insecurity there as well, and he masks that with this posturing that he does and picking on the little guy. And you're right about how he's threatened by Ichabod Crane. Um, I did call into question that. They're treating her like a prize to be one, like both of them. It's like, you know, I mean, what do you think about Ichabod's motivation is to try to win, quote unquote, Katrina? And should we want him to win her? I mean, is is that something that's, are we rooting for him to get that? Or or do we always know that he's never going to, he's never going to be Katrina's husband. It's just not going to happen. I feel like... We root for the little guy. I, I think it would be nice for him to get the girl in the end, especially because you don't necessarily want Brom Bones to get her in the end. Yeah. But I also think that love is not entering in on any of the sides. I don't even know that Katrina likes any of them. I feel like partially in my second read through, I feel like she may have been playing both sides against the middle. And, you know, she uses one to make the other jealous because maybe that's just something that she lives off of is, uh, you know, the attention, Uh, kind of like a Scarlett O'Hara-esque character, Mm -hmm. just going for that attention. The reason why I don't know that Ichabod necessarily loves her, I think he's infatuated with her because he does talk about her beauty and everything. But then really what he focuses on when you go into when he's on their land and Irving is describing all that is the land is mm-hmm. the land are the material, the, not the materials, the physical objects that they have and the food. Mm-hmm. And those are the things he focuses on. And I think that's what he dreams about in marrying her. And for that reason, I don't really want him to be with her either. But it's not like I want Brom to be with her because I don't know what his reasons or motives are either. So I kind of want poor Katrina to find someone who actually loves her for her, which could be one of, you know, the unnamed masses. But yeah, yeah. so I, I think we root for the little guy. But I think in this sense, his motives are not as pure as we would want them to be but at the same time i never felt that ichabod crane gets what's coming to him at the end of the story i felt that if brom bones were in the position that ichabod is at the end of the story where he is attacked by the headless horseman we would be rooting for the horseman because brom bones is a is a jerk (laughs) 
Um, but Ichabod Crane, like, it, it's sad the way his story ends because, like, you're kind of feel you are feeling a little bit bad for him that he does get rejected. I don't say you're rooting for him, but you're rooting for him on the level that you want him to come out on the end. You want him to, you're right, you want him to do better than Brom Bones at something. But then when you kind of look at the fact that the, the prize, so to speak, is this girl, and, and you're right, she is playing both sides against the middle end. Ichabod is a little too focused on the fact that he would be, instead of marrying Katrina, it's more like he's excited about the prospect of marrying into the Van Tassel family and having access to all the things he sees there. You're right. right. They do. They do. Let's see. Uh, you got like suckling pigs and, um, you know, all of these, all of this, these, this food and Irving, Irving makes you hungry by, <laughs> focusing on the food of the banquet and things like that. So, which is, I, it, I mean, God, like how many, how many times have we seen lavish descriptions of the riches of something in an, in an American novel? Yeah. You know, fast forward to, I mean, I'm sure I've never read gone with the wind. I'm sure Margaret Mitchell has her fair share of descriptions of plantation where it takes place. Fitzgerald spends his time in the great Gatsby you know, so we get the sense of this world and, and Crane. Crane is such an outsider to it. And he is really an outsider. New York in general, the first Europeans to come to New York and build settlements were the Dutch. The story, the famous story that you're told was that like that the Dutch tricked um, the the indigenous people, the Native Americans, into selling them Manhattan for like $27 or something. And the, the truth of that story is not true. But it wasn't until the then the English eventually basically forced the Dutch out of what was then New Amsterdam. And, in, and, and they took over New York and then it became what it eventually became, at least at this point. But um, even the area where I grew up, on the south shore of Long Island, uh, has a number of Dutch names that you run across. So I went to school with Van Dynes and Van Van Wyans <laughs> and Van Essendelts and Van Dykes wow. and yeah, just a lot of Dutch names in the Sable West Sable area. Um, in addition to those, because those of us who grew up in New York, who the Irish Italians and the people of Jew, you know, people who were Jewish or Polish descent and things like that, those are people who came over in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century. But uh, the English, and especially the Dutch names in the town, were the ones who go back a couple of hundred years. So he is the outsider. He's the Yankee, as I mentioned. Is he is he saying something about the Dutch? Is he making a social commentary about the rich and the poor? You know, is he just having fun with it? What's his whole point about making sure that he that everybody knew that, like, you know, this this really wealthy Dutch family was was Dutch and that Ichabod Crane was the outsider. Is, is there a commentary on Irving's part there? Huh. Um, well, I think, you know, in your, your background, you did talk about how Irving likes to comment uh, or make commentary on outsiders. Mm-hmm. And since he's really coming from where Connecticut, isn't it? Yeah. Does an Ichabod so. come from Connecticut that I, I can absolutely. believe So Yeah. Um, he would delight them equally as anecdotes of witchcraft and the direful omens and pretentious sights and sounds of the air which were terrible in the earlier times of Connecticut and would frighten them woefully. Yeah, so he he had traveled around, but yes, he was Connecticut was one of the places where he would have come from. 
So I think, you know, there, there might be something there. As for rich and poor, I'm not sure that I see it as much because it seems like with all of the places, because he basically depends on everybody's kindness and stays in their houses and things, it seems like he get, gets pretty sumptuous uh, feasts all the time. So it's not like anyone is <laughs> struggling to make ends meet as as far as I could tell. But there is, I guess, the there is some sort of difference between the uh, Katrina's family and and the rest of the people. But I, I, I don't know. I, I couldn't say. I don't know. What do you think? I'm not sure. I, 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 I was wondering at first, but I was wondering if he if he is lampooning the differences between the, the, the different people. Or I don't know. So where I see Brown Bones, I'm like maybe he is making a commentary on on kind of how uh, certain classes of other people bully other people. Um, I think through a modern lens, you can look at masculinity a little bit through this. Um, I think somebody who who would come along later has a better take on it. That would be Herman Melville, but um, because it's Moby Dick in a big way, it's a lot about. It's a lot about men and masculinity and and, and the the trappings thereof. I was wondering it myself, and I was wondering if he was just kind of if he was just uh, you know making fun of the old money or, or just having a little fun with it, but not on the level of like an F. Scott Fitzgerald or somebody. Like, I think this is that. I think this just the the wealth of the Van Tassels helps set the stage for the legend itself. Like you need all of these different characters to be in one place for that scene at the party and therefore the aftermath, you know? So, um, and he's, he's pulling from what were traditions at the time. I believe, I believe the idea of sitting around and, and having story contests and things would be like party games that people would have. So, um, I think maybe he's also taking the conventions and the traditions of the time and using them to his, them to his advantage. A couple of questions about Ichabod himself a little bit more. Why is he so superstitious? I mean, like, what does it say about him? Because it's like at the end, so you've been listening to short, so at the end of the story, he, he walks through town and then he the, he has the encounter, but before the encounter I mentioned, he keeps seeing things that he swears are out of the stories that he was told. And I don't know if you've ever had this happen where like, you know, you watch a scary movie late at night and you turn it off and you're not really that scared, but all of a sudden like you hear like the house starting to settle sure. and you're like convinced there's a ghost in the house. So I can totally see that, you know, I can totally see. And, and he's superstitious to begin with. So like, what, what is the, why, why is he like that? I mean, what is the telling us about his character? How does that flesh out his character? Do you think it's possible that he is influenced though, by the things he's reading? Because we see that he, his nose is often buried in the stories of Cotton Mather. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know that too. Yeah. If, if if that has something to do, which didn't we just? Oh yeah, Don Quixote. I was like, didn't we just mm-hmm. talk about someone who was influenced by things that they had read? <laughs> yes, yeah, well, actually, we did. Well, and so, I, I want to yeah. say on some level, just not to just interrupt you for like really, really quickly, gunpowder and and gunpowder. I think is like a slight reference to the horse and Don Quixote. Like there is a little bit of, of influence of Don Quixote on the story or, or at least a reference. Like, I think it's a slight reference to it or I, I picked that up on that as well. I think, yeah, I think that's mainly what I would think. Yeah. I read through that with a, with another eye to Mm -hmm. see what he, what I could 
pull up from him. But it seems apart from that, he's very much invested in singing the Psalms, I think it is, or like psalmics, something yeah. like that. So music is a, is a big thing for him. But I think it might be those stories. I think that he really gets engrossed with them and, and reads those a lot. And, and he also likes to pass on different tales that he's heard in his travels. So I think he's just overly influenced, potentially. The religious, the, the calling upon spirituality or religion is, is very much of its time for the era. This is an area of the country, especially as you get further into New England, it had a very Puritan influence in its early days, obviously. So it's, and it's a very, you know, uh, between the Dutch and the English, um, you're talking very, a number of pro, very Protestant denominations. Uh, the Catholics don't start to, to make their appearance until the, I think, the mid 1800s. So, and, and New York City and Long Island, um, the predominant Christian denomination nowadays is Catholicism. But back this time, it would have been like Church of England and then whoever the Dutch were, if the Dutch were Calvinists or not. I, 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 I really should have done a little more research in the religious background. But, but the fact that Ichabod, you know, would have, you know, some Psalms or something similar to that. I did find a rather reference to Don Quixote, though. Um, our copy of the Norton Anthology has footnotes. And on page 919, there is a sentence that says, But it is meet I should, in a true spirit of romantic story, give some account of the looks and equipments of my hero and his steed. And then he goes on to this description. That's why I use the word steed. But then again, <laughs> whenever I hear the word mighty steed, I think of um, donkey in Shrek. Um, mighty steed. Um so he gives this description, and the, the footnote says, The description recalls Cervantes' portrayal of Don Quixote and his horse Rocinante. Part of Irving's anti-Yankee fun comes from playing off Cotton Mather's solemn books, which confuse the schoolmaster's brains against the romances of chivalry, which are the source of Don Quixote's delusion. So he is making a reference to Don Quixote, and he is poking a little bit fun of at Yankee... Um, the Yankee in, in Ichabod Crane. So it, it, maybe it's not satire or biting criticism so much as it is just kind of having. What would have, uh, getting back to Katrina, you had a, I think these were a couple of your questions. Why, what would have made her attracted to both of them? I th- you know, and it, aside from the fact that she, she likes getting the attention. Yeah. Is there something attractive about both of them? And if this had been a romance, because like they're, 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 they're fighting with one another over her hand in marriage, but it's not—it's not a romantic comedy, you know, of of of, of a nowadays type of thing, or it's not—it's um, not even a Shakespeare romantic portrayal where it's like you know, Midsummer Night's Dream, and they're all fighting over each other and this and that and whatever. So, what if this were romantic? Like, how would that play out? And um, and and if she actually was attracted to them, what what would she see in either of them? I'm sure if it were a romance, it would be similar to Pretty in Pink. <laughs> Isn't that the one, Ducky? Yes. Okay. Ducky. Because you have the, you know, the attractive guy and then the nerdy guy. That's a really good comparison, actually. Yes. Yeah. So, and, you know, you have the one that you want her to, to go for, potentially. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, if it were a romance, I would like it to be them trying to get her hand for her and not... 
whatever other reason that they have. Mm-hmm. I, again, I still don't know what Brahm's reasons are. I think that he is probably really attracted to her. I don't know if love enters into it. And then, of course, it becomes a competition. For Katrina, I think that she's attracted to Ichabod's way with people because it seems like, in general, he is a people person. And I, I think... He just gets along with the town, or so it seems, and he's intelligent, and it seems very cultured, and perhaps being someone from another town is also very attractive, because Mm -hmm. this outside, sometimes outsiders are attracted, attractive to people who have lived in the same place, because they give you a sense of adventure, or a sense of learning something, or experiencing Mm -hmm. something that you've not experienced before in your life, so I think there's that. Yeah, and I think Brom, I mean, the way he sounds, he's probably, like, I think there might be maybe physical attraction between those two. Yeah. But we don't get he's, much. He's Gaston. Yes. Doesn't yeah, he remind you of Gaston? Right. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's got muscles on his muscles or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, I mean, every every other action that we see him is just like this guy playing around, so you don't really get a sense of him being too deep <laughs> emotionally mm-hmm. or intellectually. So I can only assume that she's attracted to him physically. Yeah. But, um, you were talking about Ichabod's intelligence. Um, and he definitely does not hide the fact that he's intelligent. In fact, there is a bit of ego to him. He seems full of himself sometimes. Um, especially when it comes to the intelligence, how does that affect his relationships in town and, does it foreshadow um, his downfall at all? Yeah, I think there might be some hu- some hubris there, some pride. Mm-hmm. I think he shows off. He shows off with his intelligence and I think how he acts with other people and really liking to be liking liking being like being what on earth? He likes <laughs> to be sort of at the center of attention. And he likes to know that all eyes are on him. And I don't know if maybe the the town townspeople maybe don't like that at a certain point and become annoyed at it. I think it's good that he only spends, what is it, a week at each house? Because I think if it were more, it'd be problematic. <laughs> but I think it, <laughs> they might. I don't know. I mean, he seems helpful. He holds babies and things like that. But I think after a while, he'd probably be eating them out of house and home. Mm-hmm. I think it is one of those, you know, pride before, what is it? Pride before a fall, fall right? Yeah. Or yeah, whatever yeah, yeah, that, that's right. that pride phrase is. Before the fall, right? Because I, I think we do start to see him get built up because he's really sort of walking around with the big head so i think it's just this hero that's there and he's showing this pride and so something something is bound to happen to knock him down a peg and it certainly does yeah well what's interesting is this in the background and looking at looking at the origins of the like headless horseman and it being a, used in northern european storytelling they very often go after people who are scheming or full of hubris and arrogance which is if you're familiar with that trope Prior to, if the, if people were familiar with this prior to reading the story, then they would expect one of those two characters to encounter the headless horseman, because Brom Bones is no humble person at all either. So it's almost like you're setting them both up, but they were both arrogant in their own sort of way, you know. And um, what's interesting, and I want to get into, um, as we kind of come to our closing out our, our um, discussion of the. Uh, of the entire story. 
one thing that we were talking about, the superstitions he has, and on page 927 of, of the Norton here, where he is in the middle of the of the pursuit, right? And he says, uh, an opening in the truce now cheered him with the hopes that the church's bridge was at hand. The wavering reflection of a silver star in the bosom of the brook told them that he was not mistaken. I love these descriptions, by the way. It's just like, you know, he saw the walls of the church dimly glaring under the trees beyond. He recollected the place where Brom Bones' ghostly competitor had disappeared. So there was the idea that the story that Brom Bones told was that he had an encounter with the horse and beat the horseman or something to that extent. Like, that's what set him off on this sort of scary little thing because Brom Bones had scared the crap out of him with the story of the Headless Horseman. And he says, if I can but reach that bridge, thought Ichabod, I am safe. And the footnote says, superstitions held that spirits could not cross water. So it was never established necessarily. It was kind of established in Brahm's story, but it wasn't like it was like a hard and fast rule. Like this is a horror movie. And it's like, you know, if you do this, like, or it's like a vampire novel, you know, and if you have garlic around your neck, the vampire, you have a crucifix, you know, those sorts of rules. But he certainly believes this rule about a spirit not being able to cross water, and that's why he races for the bridge. And I thought that was really interesting. But if we have the story, and if we flip the narrator around, or we flip the point of it's not the narrator, we flip the point of view, the main character around, it's told from the point of view, or of Katrina or Brom, would the ending change? Would Ichabod have been a protagonist or an antagonist? How would this have played out? Did you say you cut out a little bit? Did you say would Ichabod be the antagonist? See, how would the story have been different if it was told from the points of view of Katrina or Brahm? Would the endings change? Would Ichabod have been the protagonist or the antagonist of the story? If it were Brahm, Ichabod would be the antagonist. That would be weird to be inside Brahm's head. I wonder what that would be like. I mean, they'd probably take Irving would take several pages talking about his nightly pursuits and <laughs> and uh causing <laughs> chaos a throughout racy, wouldn't it? Yeah. it might and and causing chaos throughout the town i think that'd be pretty interesting mm-hmm. i think katrina i think it'd be interesting to get into her mind because it would be interesting to see what her day to day is like and also her motives and i almost wonder if you would think poorly of her and because once you are in her mind because you would get a sense of why she's, you know, I mean, being all coquettish, I think is the term, mm-hmm. and <laughs> just having all these suitors around. I think you probably would get a real sense of Scarlett O'Hara. I can sort of just envision her like that. But it'd be, you would also just see her opinion of these two guys and then what her reaction would be at the disappearance of Ichabod at the end. And if it's true that. If Brom happens to be the Hellas Horseman and he's the one who did this, it would be interesting to see how he formulated all of that because it would – well, I guess it's – the tale has already permeated that society previously. Mm-hmm. But he's the one, right, who brings up the story at the dinner party. Yeah, Brom so, does, yeah. Yeah, so a lot of it was planned. It wasn't, you know, just – he happened to to think of something right away. I think he was probably planning some of that, so it'd be interesting to to get into his space. I don't know that the ending would change, but I think our perspectives of the characters would change. Yeah. And 
Yeah, who knows? I, I I think the trickiest one would be if Brom, if it was Brom as narrator, would Irving be able to balance it enough that you do think of Ichabod as like a really egotistical guy and you're happy for his downfall? Or would you just think that Brom is a smarmy guy and, and not like him at all? That one would be the tough one, but I think Katrina would be the most interesting. Yeah. I would have, we would have gotten a little bit more of the story that Brom tells, and I'm looking at it, it's on 924, where he says that he was heading home from what was then known as Sing Sing, uh, which is the prison up in Ossining, but it's, it's the, Ossining is the, is the actual city now. Um, and he said he had been overtaken by this midnight trooper that he had offered to race him for a bowl of punch, um, and would have wanted to for Daredevil. Daredevil is the name of his horse, which is such a, like, that's what you would name your horse if you were a guy like Brom Bones, right? Beat the goblin horse all hallow, but just as they came to the church bridge, the Hessian bolted and vanished in a flash of fire. So you do see him laying the groundwork for Ichabod at least being scared out of his mind toward the end. But here's my question. I think this is the question that we kind of are left hanging with at the end of the story. What really happened at the bridge? <laughs> is that actually the spirit of the headless horseman or is it Brom Bones? What's your what's your take on it? I want it to be the headless horseman. But I think while this story is steeped in mythology and those sort of superstitious tales that oh, I think it is all based in fact, so I think it is most likely an actual human character and I I think that it might, in fact, have been Brom Bones. And I think the big hint that it is Brom Bones is how he's chuckling at the end. And even, mm-hmm. you know, Irving sort of does a little a little wink there, and he's able to carry off Katrina so he gets everything that uh, he wants. But, man, I, the big question for me is, though, you know, what happened to Ichabod? Because it seems like the stuff that Brom did was more or less harmless, I mean, he did get into some fights and everything, but I don't think he ever, like, tried to kill somebody. So that's one of my questions, though. That's my caveat of saying if Brahms was this person, then what was his true intent? Did he just want to frighten him really poorly, or did he, like, was this pretty vicious and was more over the top than he normally did? Yeah, the the rumor is that he just... He um, literally left in the middle of the night after it happened, and and Brahms' intent was not to kill him, but it was just to really to scare the life out of him. You know, like, and the idea that he may have thrown the pumpkin at him, knocked him off the horse, and then Ichabod woke up, kind of took what he couldn't, you know, left behind what he did and just ran for it. Um, I guess that's the most straightforward explanation, but I'm with you. I want it to be the Headless Horseman. And it seems that despite all this evidence, the contrary, that people do, they add another layer to the legend. Yeah. You know, they say at the end, the old country wives. So the old wives tale, you know, you've known that expression, right? The old wives tale, the old country wives, however, who are the best judges of these matters maintain to this day that Ichabod was spirited away by supernatural means. And he becomes another story that they say that it's before the schoolhouse is reported to be haunted by the ghost of the unfortunate pedagogue. And the plowboy loitering homeward of a still summer evening has often fancied his voice at a distance, chanting a melancholy psalm tune among the tranquil solitudes of Sleepy Hollow. Uh, so I like how, despite the fact that he does kind of feel the curtain back enough, 
he adds that little layer to it, like the legend lives on anyway. And that's one of the things I love about the ending of the story. Now, we have an epilogue because this is this has this weird framing device of this person named uh, Mr. Knickerbocker, and supposedly this story was found in his papers. Um, what's he? What do you think he's doing there with that as, as a storyteller? The idea that this it reminds me of Don story. Quixote. It does. It does. It, it reminds me of Don Quixote. Yeah. And the whole... Um, Cervantes really writing as that other guy mm-hmm. whose name I've now forgotten. So it just, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. know his it, name either. It's almost, yeah, like found stories. I don't know if that's a, a found stories genre, but it just seems like, you know, the author picking this up and, oh, wasn't this interesting? Or, you know, I heard this from this other tale, from this other bloke, and it really came from me. But to make it, to add another layer to it, and it also makes you think, like, oh, could this be real? Like, it almost adds uh, a hint of realism to it. Yeah, because it's a kind of urban legend feel, like, you know, no, this really happened here. And, yeah, it's one of the reasons I like it so much. I like I, I, I like the idea that, that what Irving is doing is almost creating an American mythology. Um, or, or at least that, that sort of mythology, not of the gods and heroes sort of thing, but of the that we have our own little legends, we have our own little stories like this. And I think it's a really important fabric of both our literature and our culture that we have things like this to call our own that are not necessarily always borrowed from, you know, the European cultures or other cultures that, um, that settled here and things like that, because, uh, you know, it's, it's, and it's very much of its time too, but the, the story and the headless horseman, this is not an obscure piece of American literature that you only will study if you study post-colonial lit or something, post-American colonial lit or American Revolutionary War era lit. It's enduring. Like, why is this such a famous story even to this day? People know the Headless Horseman, and to a certain extent, they know Ichabod Crane and the Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Why has this endured for 200 years? That's the question. I think it's the Headless Horseman. I think that he's just such an interesting figure of American mythology. And even without knowing much of anything, this guy, this headless guy on a horse that has a flaming, like a hobgoblin, that has a flaming pump that throws at people, I think is just really interesting. And I think uh, Ichabod, is, you know his name, Ichabod Crane, but really you focus on the fact that, you know, it's about this headless horseman and you know a little bit about Ichabod and that he, he, had a, a sad demise with the with the horseman, and I think he's just an eerie and great character, and just what an image. No matter the drawing, just to have this huge, I think, pretty hulking guy that's dressed in black, no head. He's on a steed that might blow fire or smoke out of its nose, and that holds this flaming pumpkin, you know, like hobgoblin, mm-hmm. and. I think when you go to this story, you might know Ichabod Crane and you might know his name. You might think that or know that he goes up against the Headless Horseman, but I think he's really the one that it centers around. And I think with American culture, I'll just say American because I can't really speak for the rest of the world. Yeah, yeah. And I think we like anyway. spooky aspects of things. I mean, people yeah. know who Michael Myers is. They know who Jason is, even if they haven't ever seen those films. Yeah. And I think that this is a nice twist of a folktale or mythology that adds to our like American origin story. Cause this was like with the colonies and, mm-hmm. uh, um, 
you know, post-American revolution. Yeah. And, you know, so it's, it's a different take. It's a darker take than like Paul Bunyan or John Henry Irons. Mm -hmm. So I, I think, yeah, I, oh man, I just, I just think it's so fun. It's spooky. It's got that superstition, but it's also grounded in reality and history. And so that's why I think it's just attached itself to our culture. Yeah, and I agree with you, and I see this, and, and I, you started talking, mentioning Michael Myers and Jason, and I was thinking around the same thing of how we always have that that figure who is the centerpiece of these horror movies, um, who has this mysterious origin in many, in many cases, like in the case of Jason and Michael Myers, doesn't say anything. Um, but then I also extend beyond Irving to, like, bless you, to Poe. <laughs> Bless you again. Thank you. Sir. To to Poe, right, and and even his stories, which have a grounding in reality, and the spookiness to say like the Raven, right, and um, the sadness of the Raven, or or the Telltale Heart, or the Cask of Montiato, and the Pit of Pendulum, and, and these stories that that are like you know the the beginnings of of our modern day horror and things, and I think they extend from Irving here too. Um, and you're right. We just we just love we love a good scary story in our culture, and and not that other cultures don't. You know, um, two of the greatest horror novels of science fiction horror novels of all time are Frankenstein and Dracula, and both of those were um, English writers. But at the same time, there is something I've always loved the fact that there is something uniquely American about the story, and it really does just even from such an early day of our nation's history um, as a nation kind of pulls in that that spookiness especially when you consider how how a lot of this country was rural farmland wilderness and that there was a big scary unknown out there and and you know and uh there was this i don't know it's just you're everything you said was right i'm trying to agree with you and add to it but i'm just kind of like yeah yeah just nodding along and nodding along um would you teach this I would teach it. I do. I try to connect some classic myths to or origin stories to folk tales. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because students now seem to not remember as many folk tales. So when I mention John Henry Irons or Paul Bunyan and his blue ox, they don't really know what I'm talking about, which is really sad for me, yes. actually, because, you know, I was growing up with that kind of stuff. So I think it would be interesting to add this. I wonder um, what sort of myth I could potentially connect it to. But I think it'd be fun to, yeah, do some sort of connection like that. I would, too. Um I think that if you're teaching 11th grade English and you're teaching American literature, you should hit upon this story. I think it's one of the foundations of, um, I've, I've made the argument in the last few years that horror is a, uh, underrepresented genre across, uh, literature classes, English uh, classes in high school. And I, Edgar Allan Poe is probably the most closest you'll get to something like horror. And I think Washington Irving is another one where like you're, You've got something that is uniquely American. It's one of the very foundations of American short storytelling because it's one of the first that was ever really popular. And um, in the same way that we look at kind of American philosophy through works like Walden or Emerson's um, or the, uh, the essays and things of Ralph Waldo Emerson, I think you can look at American storytelling through Washington Irving. So that's why I think it's just an essential text and it's not a long story. It's a long short story, 
you know, it's not a short, short story. But it's also not like we're not looking at the Scarlet Letter here, which is a long, it feels like a long slog of another or, or Moby Dick, you know, which is just a whale of a book in itself. But oh, my it's God. Just, yeah, I know. But um, have you have you seen, you know, that meme that's going around where it's the guy with his girlfriend and he's looking at the girl that's coming toward the oh, camera. Oh, gosh. You've that's seen that, been- right? Yeah, for somebody, hundreds of things. Somebody posted one where the guy is Herman Melville. Oh, no. The, the girlfriend is the actual plot of Moby Dick. And the girl walking toward the camera that he's checking out is like various facts about whales or oh. something, which is such a great. So I told my class the other day they were actually laughing because it's such a great summary of that book. Um, but it's not. So we're, um, we're not asking our kids to sit down and read Moby Dick. Which I think is worth reading anyway, and that's another topic for another day. But this is something that it's it's it provides a beautiful description of an area and, and a period in history. So there's a historical value to it, and then just in terms of its contribution to our culture and its contribution to our literary history and storytelling, I really do think it's an essential text. And if were I teaching eleventh grade, I would teach it. So. We do have some feedback. Um, we've got uh, a couple of things, not not a ton, and and we are already getting some feedback in on Don Quixote, and we will be covering that, that feedback yeah. next. Yeah, and a dog on a book. Yeah, so we'll be uh, we'll be covering quite a bit of that next uh, next episode. Um, but would you like to read what Robert Ward had uh, in his Facebook message for us? Absolutely. This was regarding our novelization and EU podcast episode. You want a good, you want a really good film novelization? The Shape of Water. Del Toro is famous for extensive backstories and the work he puts into every film. So it should be no surprise that when the novel comes around, it's amazing. According to IMDb Trivia, some individual notes took up to 40 pages. I'm listening to the audiobook now and have just under five hours left out of 13 plus. The narrator is really amazing, too. Jenna Lamia has a real knack for accents and brilliantly pulls off the various characters. I would argue it's superior to the film. In the book, have you seen this film? I have not, but I'm familiar with it. One best picture, I believe, right? Huh. I think it won I think it won Best Picture last year. Or at least he won Best Director. Yeah, let me do do do. I actually it was up for Best Picture, I do know, because I saw nearly all of the Best Picture nominees. Let me just see here. Oscar Best Achievement in Directing. Yeah, Best Motion Picture of the Year. All Good right. job. Okay. <laughs> yes it did, Tom. Uh in the book, Richard Strickland, which was Michael Shannon in the film, is not Fraud. only the head of security. Yes, is not only the head of security for the asset, but he was the one hunting for it for 17 months in the jungle. While a bit of a chauvinist, he really is given added dimension overall and, dare I say, improve upon Shannon's performance. He is a man broken by 17 months and struggling to readjust to home life. On top of an awkward home life and the feeling of alienation to his wife, he is a man desperately trying to assert dominance at work. Clumsily. His wife is given an added role in being promoted to one of the main voices in the novel. Lainey Strickland is the stereotypical bored housewife desperate to find her own standing outside the husband she doesn't know. She secretly takes a part-time job at an office, the ad agency Giles works at coincidentally, but offers a compelling counter to Elisa or Elisa, whose love affair is still slowly growing. Growing. 
afterwards, I'm definitely going to check out some of the other Del Toro novelizations to see if they likewise were expanded. This one is highly recommended, though, if you enjoyed the film. I do wonder, I wonder if Pan's Labyrinth has a novelization. Mm-hmm. That's uh, one of my favorite Del Toros. Um, the only the only thing I've read of his in prose form that um, he was involved in is somewhere or another. I read the first book of the Strain uh, trilogy. I have the other two. I just haven't gotten around to reading them either. So. But I enjoyed that. So. Then there was, there was an, an email, email. Yeah. from Robert Ward, which... Uh, Okay. For, and then there was an email from Robert Ward. Opening flash number 50, I saw the ad for DC Icons, a series of novels based on the DC universe. I don't remember ever seeing this, and it's news to me. I saw Superman 1 is coming, so I looked up the date for that, but wanted to ask, have either of you read any of these previous books? And if so, what did you think of them? Recommended reading. Um, I've seen them in Barnes & Noble but I have not read them. Um, Brett has a, I think it's for like a junior novel or a younger readers one that's based on the flash TV show that he read. Cause I found it at, um, I don't know where I found it, but I bought it for him uh, and, and got it for his birthday. But no, I haven't read any of the, and the novels have, have you? I haven't DC icons. That's what um, no, I haven't. I can see the covers in my head. They they kind of remind me of the covers for the Divergent series, like the same sort of oh. very, very similar style in terms of the typeface and, and the kind of the presentation. Um, I, I saw Wonder Woman 1. I believe I saw Superman Batwoman. I want to say I saw like a Catwoman 1 or something like that. Um, but I know I remember seeing a Wonder Woman 1 um, the last time it was in Barnes & Noble a couple of, about a month ago or so. Um, he also shared some funny things regarding the awfulness that are raisins. They're actually fine, and they're Terrible. better. No, no. They, they people put them into baked goods. They have no reason being in baked goods. No, that's because you need to try some oatmeal raisin cookies. That's like the only passable baked good with raisins in it. <laughs> and then, like they 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 murder bagels with these things. And murder? Like, yes. What do you mean? And like cinnamon raisin bagels, the scent of a cinnamon raisin bagel will infect all the other bagels in the bag. That's not true. That the whatchamacallit does though? The what's it called? Um The everything? Yes. And the that's because it has onions on it. But but you expect that. Onions have this way of seeping their way into everything. So you take the precautions to do that. Cinnamon raisin bagels is just it's it's just just wrong. Oh my gosh. So anyway. You need to calm down. (laughs) On that note, Uh I won't be able to get bagels on Saturday because it's going to be raining. (laughs) Oh, do you normally get them on Saturday? uh, Every couple of weeks I make a Bodo's run. Well. We'll we'll get a dozen. We'll freeze what we don't eat so that we can, like, reheat them. Maybe you should get them tomorrow so you have some sustenance for you when the Mm -hmm. uh, power goes out. We have a few in the freezer already, so. Anyway, now now I want a bagel and it's 10 o'clock at night. Um, we are going to close out. This is a little bit shorter, but then again, this was a short story and sure. uh, we didn't have so much feedback as we usually get. But although it's maybe it's more of a normal length episode because we've had some we've had a few episodes that went really long because of just the the, um, the content, you know, the, the, the breadth of the like Don Quixote was a long book, you know, so it's going to be a long episode. 
Uh, but before we go and before we do our usual outro, we do have a question, the most important question for the every episode. Stella, what is our next book? Uh, yes, I battled with me, with myself for many hours trying to figure out what to do. Went back and forth, back and forth. And then through a series of connecting thoughts, I came to this book and it is Atonement by Ian McEwan, which is a 20, sorry, 2001 book. Mm-hmm. There you go. That's what it is. This was made into a movie. That is correct. Was Meryl Streep in this movie? No, she's not. Kira Knightley. Kira Knightley. And James McAvee and Shursa Ronan. Okay. What was the name of the very recent one with Rachel McAdams, Rachel Weisz playing the... It was Disobedience. Disobedience. Okay. I was also thinking of that. Okay. Atonement. All right. So that you will hear from from us on that (laughs) in... About a month or so. Until then, uh, don't forget to check out our Twitter feed at Rec Reading Cast. That's R E Q Reading Cast. And uh, maybe we'll actually get more than just show notes on the blog over the course of the school year now. Um, we were doing pretty well for, there for a while with the reviews of books we were reading. Whoops. And then life got in the way. It sure um, did. Yeah. So that's, and that, of course, is required reading at Tom, with thomasdella.com. And you can always. Email us, post um, post your thoughts to Facebook. We try to read as much as we can. And please um, just uh, keep listening. And uh, thank you very much for listening to us. And take care. I hope you make it across that bridge. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Good night. Odds, bodkins, gadzooks. Look at that old Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two truths. That's two truths. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash requiredreading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcast. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode. Gave rise to mixed emotions. The townspeople all agreed they'd never seen anyone. I kick about, kick about crane.